0: Welcome to the season two premiere of Art Traverted. This week we speak with Bonnie Pittman, former director of the Dallas Museum of Art and current distinguished scholar in residence at the UT Dallas Edith O'Donnell Institute of Art History at the University of Texas at Dallas, and the director of Art Brain Innovations at the UT Center for Brain Health. In our conversation, we discuss her transition from museum director to trailblazer in the field of art and medicine. After contracting a rare pulmonary virus abroad, she was forced to abandon her museum career. After spending long hours in hospitals and clinics around the country, she realized that physicians could benefit from her experience as an art educator. She launched a program that went international, bringing medical students into the museum to teach them how to look at art, a practice that's changed how they engage with their patients, and the field of medicine. Her second career with art and health has made an indelible impact on the field and shows the power of art to transform our lives. So without further ado, let's jump in. So you've had a quite distinguished career in museums and decades of experience working at the intersection of art and medicine and art and healing. And I'm so excited to get into that. But Before we do, I want to just talk about how you got into the arts.
1: Well, it's a, a very interesting question because I, um, I grew up in a small community in Massachusetts. It's called Provincetown. It's at the very end of Cape Cod. And when I was there as a child, um, which was in the 50s, it was a town that attracted a lot of artists, Hans Hoffman and and many writers. And um, I just thought there were two jobs in the world. I thought either you were a fisherman and carpenter, which the Portuguese communities did, or you were obviously an artist. I didn't understand that there were other other jobs that you could have and so I hung out with artists and used to visit Hans Hoffman's studio and Robert Motherwell lived across the street from us and so the great uh Family the Walker family, that established the Walker Art Museum, everybody was there, and it was a very relaxed summer community and then of course, they all went away in september and Those of us who lived there my my mother had divorced and moved to to Cape Cod you know continued uh, on in our lives and so it wasn't until I was like ten or eleven years old that i Realized that, um, you know, that there were very different jobs that you could have in the community. So I, I just grew up around artists. So that was, I think, one of the most influential aspects of my life. And then um, my mother lo- and my grandmother loved going to art museums. And so when I visited my grandmother, which was as frequently as possible because she loved art, um, my brothers didn't come with me, which was a great bonus when you're the only girl in the family and you're expected to do all the girl chores, such as (laughs) the laundry and dishes and things like that. I um, hung out with my grandmother as much as possible. And so that escape uh, was also very important. So she took me to museums all over uh, New York City, Boston, and of course, Washington, D.C. And there I just fell in love with art and Loved going to see the objects, the paintings and the sculptures and made up stories. I wasn't, hadn't studied anything, but I made up stories and lived in a fantasy world that was based on these wonderful experiences. So it was, it was those early years. Um, it led to me studying art history in college and then uh, and traveling in Europe. And the more I got involved in the art world, the more I decided that this was a place that I'd like to work in.
0: What was it like growing up in Motherwell and Hoffman studios and others
1: well one I didn't realize it was supposed to be a special thing mm-hmm. um but two uh, the thing I remember most was robert um was Robert motherwell was incredibly tall and uh, he was you know, always working in his studio in Provincetown in the summertime. And Hans Hoffman had huge hands, just enormous hands. (laughs) And going, his studio was very messy, um, rather compared to Robert Motherwell's. And so both of those lived very close to my parents in, in, um, in distance from our home. And it was just a, you know, it's just something that I took for granted and just remember these, I didn't know these were important artists. And of course, at that time in the early fifties, they weren't um, considered to be the great artists that they are today. So it was a very normal experience and I would just sit there and watch them paint. And for many years, I thought I was going to be a painter and was accepted to Rhode Island School of Design three times. And my parents absolutely would not let me go because they (laughs) they knew that I would never... Make money, (laughs) even back then. Right, (laughs) um, artist life was was one of poverty.
0: (laughs) Are there any of those paintings that you have a particular affinity for that maybe you see in museums and you think oh that just takes you um, back to your childhood or?
1: Right. Well, in my house, I was fortunate enough when I was older to buy a number of Motherwell prints. I could never afford a painting because they're way too expensive. So I have another number of Motherwell. prints in my home. And Robert, um, and then with Hoffman, I worked for five years at the Berkeley Art Museum in, um, Berkeley, California. And they have, Hoffman left his collection of, uh, paintings to the Berkeley Art Museum. So I had lots of opportunities to not only see them, but also to work with the curators. I was the deputy director at the museum and I was able to, um, Mount exhibitions and and work with the collections of his work. And um, they're incredible pieces. I mean, they just you know, those blocks of powerful pink reds and blues and yellows and pinks you know, just come out and you know, kick you in the chest and stomach. I mean, there's a physicality to Hoffman's paintings that is so um, and, and sense of color that is so, for me, so energizing and Motherwell's paintings were like Sumi, you know, his beautiful breaststrokes of the, like Sumi, um, paintings of the Japanese and his black and whites and also his color paintings when he does them are very, are very, um, plain So you don't get the kind of push and pull that you do in Hoffman. But I remember all that from just sort of hanging out with them.
0: Oh, that's fun. Yeah. The works are really, arresting. yeah, it was
1: a fun chapter. There's no question.
0: So did that lead you to specialize in in post-war art? Was that something that you wanted?
1: Yeah, definitely. They had a big influence on me. And um, when I was in uh, studying art history at Sweet Bar College, and then later at Tulane in uh, New Orleans, both of those were very influential. Um, You know, the experiences I had in New Orleans, I was really captivated by the African collection, which I helped to unpack that in that museum. And in New Orleans, we unpacked some great collections that had been given to the museum. Also in Seattle, when I taught, and worked in Seattle Art Museum, we unpacked the Catherine Wright uh, collection of African art. So I became very familiar with that and with Asian art. Once I was teaching in museums as a museum educator, you have to learn the collections that you're teaching in depth. And uh, I they were at that time, small enough museums that when something came like a big new collection, it was all hands on deck. And I would actually be, I I was trained by the curators and registrars to unpack things. And it was a great opportunity. So um, the interest in art history expanded much beyond 20th century uh, American and European art into other ethnic areas. So it was It's the gift of studying museum collections, which you know.
0: And I love African art. I took an African art class in college. I was between... I, I it's kind of a shame to say I sat in a uh, Japanese art class and immediately I, b- between the teacher and, and the material that they were teaching, I thought, you know, I'm never going to get these names. And and <laughs> later having worked a lot with Asian art, I felt really bad about that. But African art, yeah. I was just transfixed with because it's it's really kind of a mix of visual culture and anthropology right. and... Um, it doesn't really have anything to do with art per se, um, other than its kind of relation to, or its influence on uh, European artists of the uh, early 20th century. And now with restitution, that that's kind of uh, a new frontier is really happening. I mean, France just agreed, I think with Benin uh, to give works of art back and uh, there's a long history of that and and that restitution is finally coming in, in the field of African art. But as far as the presentation of African art, uh, I've I've been to many African art collections, and I think one of my favorite is the Musée Jacques Chirac, uh, the Quai in in Paris, just because of how Mm -hmm. how moody it is. Uh, However, um, I really firmly believe, and it's not because I'm talking with you right now, that the Dallas Museum of Art has the best presentation of African art um, Mm -hmm. that I've ever seen, and it's because it provides that context. Um, And I'd wonder if you could talk kind of about that, about the evolution of Um, presenting African art in context?
1: Well, I think that that has um, developed rapidly over the years in uh, terms of a deeper understanding of what the African uh, cultures are and the meaning of these works within those cultures and and over time. What has happened is that initially it wasn't anthropological museums primarily held the collections and it wasn't until uh, both in Europe and the United States that showing African art in the context of an art museum was specific works were pulled out because of their aesthetic merit, uh, as opposed to the meaning of the the context of the work and the artists who had created them, that people began to look at African art in different ways. And it's a very convoluted history, um, especially I think in the United States, because of the situation with uh, um Slavery and the, the battles for uh, that are inherent and that we 've seen certainly this during these past months uh, and years over the years that it wasn 't valued the same way, and there was a tremendous difference in the perception of African art and the perception of art. Um, well, perception of African art and indigenous art, I should say. So Native American, Aboriginal, um, lots of different um, cultures that have exquisite works of art were not as valued. That has changed largely because curators came into the collections and largely because donors started collecting this work. And the result of the donors' interest and their support of these collections transformed museums because when they um, passed the collections on to the museum, the museum had to reconsider the story of their institution and place these works into new context. Um, Margaret McDermott here in Dallas was the primary funder of works of art in the African collection. She and her husband, Eugene McDermott purchased two large collections um, for the DMA, uh, and they became the foundation of the DMA's African art collection that you see in, in the galleries today. And um, she brought that work in specifically to help speak to the different aspects of the community and it was her intent or the family's intention to um uh, provide opportunities for african americans and africans who lived here in dallas to see these cultures and to understand their heritage and um I think over the years, the DMA has always treasured the works. We've had uh, great curators, especially now Rosalind Walker, who is the senior curator of African art. Fantastic individual. Yeah. yeah, And she's led the um, scholarship and advancement. And I hired her when I was at the DMA and she had been the former director at the national museum of African art. So we've always been lucky to have uh, this kind of leadership and, and, and Roz transformed the installation of the works of art at Dallas. And she also has been a major part of the uh, community and has helped many, many other people to engage and learn from these incredible pieces.
0: Yeah. Um, that has been my experience. And Dallas actually has yeah. a very large population of, of native Africans from all over Africa, yes, maybe the largest right. population anywhere in the U S um, yeah. And um, yeah. but I, I just love that you walk into the gallery and, and there's two entrances to the gallery and you're hit right. first with this sign that says African art in context. And it has about three bullets mm-hmm. and it says that the concept of art did not exist in African societies as it does in Western societies. Right. Uh, most of these objects were designed for a specific social or religious function. And what you're seeing and they were used and what you're seeing now is a snapshot in the life of these objects um, and I can't remember the third bullet, but those alone are just enough to kind of allow you to take a pause and reflect yeah. on what you're about to see. Right. And that's something right. that's really inherent in your practice and how you approach and teach art. And maybe you could talk well, about the, that.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, you know, the, one of the works that I've, lo- I mean, there's so many in that collection, but the great Inchisi and Condi, which is sort of in the center of the gallery, it's a large space. Uh, sculpture of uh, a man whose hands are on his hip and his chest is billowed out and he has nails that are hammered into his chest and a large protruding uh, belly button, which is uh, with a cowrie shell on it, and that's a, with a called, referred to as a paquette. And the wonderful thing about the objects in the collection and the way that I teach is that most people look at that and like, what is it? And why would I want to spend time with that particular piece? And he looks kind of fearsome and and difficult, and um, then others uh, come along and don't even look at it, not realizing it's one of the great treasures of the collection. In my practice of teaching, uh, one of the things that happens is that I teach a lot of medical. Students and physicians. And what uh, one of the underlying stories of the NKC and Condi is that it is a healer and a medicine. Um, at, it, it brings healing and medicine um, uh, into the community and it does a fantastic job of, uh, with this fierce attitude and the bold structure of the figure, um, to to rethink your assumptions about what it means. And in many ways, he's like a, um, a doctor, you know, trying to heal the division in the community or heal or actually heal people that are sick. And uh, that's the, that's what I try to do is unveil the stories so that people can see um, that just like beauty changes in different Perspectives and in different cultures and and times, periods and times, um, so does our understanding of a work of art. So, the opportunity that I have of really beginning to uh, explore those stories with people from Um, And I often get people to stand in the posture of the Nkisi and Condi and what they don't realize, I mean, they're lifting their heads up and opening their eyes fully wide, you know, stretching them and their breath, their mouth is partially pursed and air is coming out and this powerful figure is standing there. But then if you really look at the bottom, you notice that his short legs are bent and his heels are up. So here you, when you get into this powerful position, you realize I'm not really balanced. And this would be a hard position to sustain for an extended period of time. And that's exactly the point because the energy running through your body is part, as you're standing in this form, um, is exactly what the uh, artist wanted to convey.
0: I want to go back because teaching about mm-hmm. art and healing through uh, objects was not always part of your job, and now it's really become your your one of your primary missions. Maybe you can mm-hmm. tell me how you segued from your career as a museum director into that.
1: That's a great question. It was an, a very unexpected turn in, in events in my life. I was the director of the Dallas Museum of Art. Uh, it was the job of my lifetime. I was the happiest I'd ever been and was thrilled to have this, uh, appointment following my dear friend, Jack Lane. And it was, um, things were going very well for me. It, uh, we were getting ready to present the King Tut show with all of its, um, excitement and trauma. And then I went to, um, the art fairs in the spring, February to, uh, 2008 in, Uh, I went to both uh, Brussels and then I went on to work on a a number of other projects. And what happened was that I uh, contracted a virus in my lungs, which I still have today, um, now 12 years later. And that virus led um, to me having to retire from the museum. Uh, But while I was at the museum, the... I used to spend a lot of time, unfortunately, in clinics and had to go down to Baylor, um, UT Southwestern, and now my doctors are at Baylor, so I go over there. And I had all this time when I was sitting in chairs getting um, treated by in the different clinics for breathing issues, and that's where I started uh, reading about art and medicine and thinking about new ways to interpret the collection, and was getting very excited about this. And and it's interesting because at the time that I retired from the museum for, um, my health reasons, uh, it was important for me to acknowledge that I, I was beginning to open up this whole new field and, uh, Thanks to friends uh, at the UT Southwestern, Dan Podolsky and a few others, they, uh, along with one of the physicians, invited me to come and develop a course that would teach early medical students first and second year how to develop their observation skills to look at art. And I found that there were lots of organizations around the country that were doing this, and it just led down a path of research and exploration, and I developed my course and started teaching it. And so that connection between basically rethinking how I looked at works of art, uh, came from there. You know, you take the great Gothic bed um, on the American floor and uh, the fourth level of the DMA and we walk by that bed, which is magnificent, made out of mahogany. I mean, it just stands, you know, almost 16 feet tall. And it's, you know, such an incredible story behind it. People don't always um, think about the meaning of a bed. For example, all the babies that were born, all the people that died, all the uh, the cycle of life, which we were talking about also in African art. That these inanimate objects have a story behind them that are is just as powerful as the way that the object was made, and it's just how we look at it from an aesthetic point of view. And that uh, those uh, new stories became part of the research that I was doing on the collection. And even after I left the uh, trustees, I was writing the handbook on the collection. And the more I was doing the research on that, although it was certainly not appropriate to bring it into the handbook, it began to open my eyes and understanding as to how these Uh, works of art had multiple layers of stories and as art historians we always tended to gravitate to the top level which was who is the artist how was the object made how was you know how was it used and didn't get into the real meaning of these works of art you know the the That a portrait of a woman um, might be a portrait of a a son painting, a portrait of his um, mother who died of cancer. And those, you know, that that whole story, the, the stories of resilience and healing are in works of art that can be amplified. By teaching. The other part of the teaching that I did was the stories were certainly there, but was really about the observation of works of art. And I've developed a framework that I now use called the power of observation, which codifies for people who are not in the arts. A way in which they can learn how to scan a work very quickly, how they can attend to it, beginning to look more closely at particular details and and understand the work, and then connecting the work to their lives and to the world around them, and that's where you often bring in these stories of information and um enrich your understanding of the work and then the last stage is transformation where you need to develop personal connection to the work of art and in the transformation phase that I'm when you're with me in the galleries that's a lot of what we work on for example I talked about standing in the posture of the NTC and Condi well suddenly you become the work of you know you, you reconsider using your whole physical self all of your senses to consider what the meaning of this work is so the power of art um, has become a framework that I use now to teach both medical students at uh, UT Southwestern. I've taught all over the country to seminars and workshops to other universities and museums. And I also teach it out at UT Dallas, where I'm currently on the faculty to honor students. And they, um, you know, the, it's, it's a life-changing experience because you begin to understand how to see the world around you.
0: Absolutely. And I think a lot of people struggle with with contacts when they look at art, when they go in museums, they feel intimidated by the works, um, whether it's contemporary art that's based on theory that they don't understand or they haven't read, right. or whether it's uh, more historical uh, works of art or even decorative art, something that they think doesn't apply to them because it does. It doesn't. They can't see how it relates to the time that they're right. They're living in now, but why doctors? Why med students?
1: Well, why not? Um, Let me just say this. The most important, having been a patient now um, and I'm in clinics all the time, um, I became very aware that many doctors, not all of them, but many doctors are there to solve a problem. So they read the chart and it says you have, um, in my case, a lung condition. So they come in and analyze you for that lung condition without thinking about the whole of you. And so often because my my condition is so rare, I go to different clinics. I've been all over the country and desire to focus on you intently and to solve the problem does not open their experience to thinking about uh, a person as a whole holistically and what all the other challenges might be that they're that they're facing so one was uh, as I say to my medical students is to get you to stop reading your iPad and looking at the chart and start talking and communicating to the patient and that engagement with the patient then you have to know how to look at to look at the patient and when they do uh, the training around such things as, you know, how do you interview your patients and how do you do an assessment, um, many of us know that there's a series of questions that they run down, and uh, one hopes that they begin to make new connections between the ideas and others. So the training is really to help them develop a, a set of skills that amplify their visual literacy so that they're both. Looking at the illness of the patient, but also as a whole. And another example is many times they, um, uh, you know, when when you enter a room and a patient's been there for uh, a few days or a week or something, you look. Do you do you look around the room? Are there any people visiting? Are there um, books or pictures of family members? Do they have a life outside the hospital context? I mean, what can you learn just by looking at that? Human being who's sitting there and suffering to uh, pick up and have a conversation with that individual, which may lead to a discovery of something that that isn't written on the chart. Um, an, Third example, one of my favorites is in the teaching that I do, I teach a class on color and I go over to Albers' color theory and um, show how images change by the use of the colors, obviously, but um, and contrasting colors. And then um, we have an exercise where a dermatologist shows different diseases in the hands and how with different colors of skin that same disease looks differently. And then I have the students try to identify, um, there are usually 30 plus students, one color of red out of 60 Pantone colors of red. And there are hundreds more than that, but I give them a 60, which is the true red. And so it takes several rounds of Arguing and fighting for them to agree on what is "quote unquote" red, um, but the whole point is that different eyes, as we know, different eyes see differently, and um, some people see more yellows, and people see more blue. There are people who can see ten million shades of colors, and so the average is about. Seven million. So there, that notion that you're really oh, it's not just red. I have to describe the shade of red. I have to describe describe the context within the skin and the pigment, so that the next physician picking this up will be able to really understand what my notes are. If I just write down red lesion, I'm not giving them enough information. So those were some of the reasons, humanistic reasons, and then the rationale of diagnosing a patient. And trying to have hard evidence that they realized that their descriptions were uh, complete enough for another person to understand the work. I'm very lucky. I have a superb physician as my lead doctor and um, I watch how Dr. Rosenblatt does all of this and it's really taught me how to incorporate some of these ideas into the work that I do in teaching.
0: Wow, that's really incredible. All from uh, a little exercise at looking at color swatches that you can really develop that sense of, uh, description and, 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 and analysis.
1: Right. And that, and that they understand, um, that's the, you know, as one student said, I will never write down that it's a red lesion again in my life. I understand now that that is not complete information. And so those, there are enough of those exercises that they really can, um, It's really exciting to see how they can change things.
0: Wow, that's great. And I could see that kind of leading to a trickle-down effect all the way down to the medical transcribers, you know, who are are transcribing their notes, people, you know, just kind of the far-reaching effect that this practice is having. You lecture widely, and um, every time Mm -hmm. I go to one of your lectures, I learn so many new things. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the last lectures that I heard you speak in person, uh, you threw out a little factoid that there are 1,440 minutes in a day right? and what you can do with them. And you spend some of those minutes on a regular practice, uh, that you invented. And, uh, I'd love for you to tell me and tell us a little bit about that.
1: Oh, thank you for asking that question. And yes, um, Um, the 1,440 minutes in a day is a very important, um, reminder in my life that, um, what a gift it is to be here. Uh, it came out of, I, I had been sick for three years, um, and was really not doing well. And I retired from the museum that, uh, in the summer of 2012 and, um, it was, uh, not in a very happy place because I was really sick combined with, uh, I wasn't sure what I was going to do next in my life. And uh, one of the interesting things that happened is that I had a biopsy that summer and the biopsy results were were very conclusive that uh, the microorganisms that are in my lung are going to continue to grow and that there's nothing we can do. And the day I received that news was pretty tough day because pretty much all these things that I loved in my life had, had disappeared. And so it was like, okay, what am I going to do now with my life? And I went home uh, that afternoon with, and my brother, I picked up my brother at the airport and told my, him about this. And he said, well, why don't you just have a, have a, take a rest. And we'll talk about this when you're up. And that's the great thing about siblings <laughs> is they know when to comfort you and, and to love you. And that afternoon I went to sleep and literally woke up, um, abruptly and wrote down what has become, um, a very, very powerful part of my life, um, which is doing something new. So I woke up and I wrote down, uh, I'm going to do something new every day. I'm going to take an ordinary day and make it extraordinary through the power of intention. Um, I'm going to go to new places. I'm going to meet new people. I'm going to do new things with old friends. I'm going to, um, explore big and little things in my life because some days I simply can't do anything more than try a new cup of tea. I I'm not in a position where my body is strong enough to do more than that. And other days, you know, I can go out for long walks or go to, and, um, you know, before COVID take a plane trip and see see new museums or see something new and i then it said i'd have to do it within 24 hours and i cannot carry forward so i i can't do something yesterday and then count it today. So the 24 hours are set. And the last thing I wrote down, which was the best is I can have new flavors of ice cream. So that was kind of, like I love ice cream. And so that was my fail safe. And I can guarantee you, if you come over to my house, the ice cream, um, I have more ice creams than I have food in my freezer. <laughs> and and the trouble is they only count once. So when you buy a pint of ice cream, you know, it's just, it lasts too long. And <laughs> uh, so it, I I have ice cream parties periodically when I would invite everybody over to enjoy that. But this simple practice of taking each day um, and making it extraordinary through the empower power of intention has been something that I um, have loved and it has helped me with my um My connect, staying connected to people, my creativity, my capacity to see um, the compassion, which is very important in life to myself and to others. It is also really helped my resilience because when you suffer with long-term illnesses, you you get worn out, quite frankly, and your body gives out from time to time. And my something new practice just sort of keeps me, yep, you got to get up, you got to do something new today, whatever it is. I would say the best part is that my friends uh, have become big components of this. And I can call somebody and say, gosh, you know, I need, I need to do something new today and you need to come over and help me. And <laughs> so people who know me love it because it takes um, takes them into a new, um, you know, into a new place. And so I have lots of wonderful stories and experiences with friends who have played a big part in it, really, have really really played a big part. So yesterday, I think it was uh, 3,000, no, 3,450 days that I have been doing my practice, three to five new things every single day and um, I keep a record of them in my uh, little iPhone under notes I take photographs mercilessly so people you know and and I never know when I take a photograph whether I'm actually going to use it but um, it's an important thing for me to keep those records because I think that by recording it it's sort of uh, it's a way in which I end the day in, in my life so the posts are always really late at night and it's a reminder that for the next morning I, when I go to bed, not to think about a work or my illness, um, but to rather think about what I'm going to do that's something new the next day. So this practice has really um, driven my life in so many ways. It's led me to, I think, explore art and medicine uh, in very powerful ways. And it has kept me um, kept me going, you know, at a time when it's kind of hard
0: sometimes. And in true Bonnie fashion, it's not something that you've kept to yourself. but something that you've made an <laughs> effort to share with many, many people. And uh, mm-hmm. one of that, one of those groups is your partnership with the University of Texas Center for Brain Health. Mm-hmm. And right. I'd love if you could talk about um, that partnership and, and what you're doing there and how you're expanding the Do Something New practice to a scientific practice. Oh, that's,
1: that's a wonderful question. And, and I'm very happy to share with you um sandy chapman who is the founding director of the center for brain health which is uh one part of ut dallas uh gave me the opportunity she was we've been friends and i was telling her about my do something new practice and she said bonnie you have to tell this story so long time ago i gave my first talk ever at um at the Center for Brain Health on my do something new practice to their her scientists and to some friends who she let me invite. What was exciting um, was that over the years, we have developed a, a deeper and deeper understanding what the potential for doing something new is, it, that it does all these things that brain health is about, you know, learning new skills. Yeah, last night, for example, um, I took a cooking class and learned how to make this amazing gingerbread um, uh, with Darren McCready, uh, who is the former chef of, uh, princess Diana and the queen in England. Ooh, and I love so, um, talk about delicious. It was amazing, but you know, I might not have done that. I just was, uh, I just wanted to really stretch out and try something new. And he was a great, you know, commentator. And, um, uh, and we also learned how to make, uh, Fudge, uh, which I can't make, on my own. I would eat the whole thing. But I'm um, the the gingerbread I made was fantastic. So it gets you into a place that you're trying new things. At any rate, what uh, the Center for Brain Health has a wonderful new project that they're undertaking, and that project is really to do a, a study, a 20-year study of brain healthy activities that will try to improve the quality of their brain health by 20% over the, over the times of the study and people can enroll in the study and just go to the center for brain health and you can sign up and, uh, look for the brain health project and you can just enroll right there. What we do is we'll be sending you, uh, you do a study of yourself, uh, so that you understand how you're, um, where you are now, you have a, a place to gauge yourself uh, that looks at your life holistically, uh, wellness activities, you're, com- um, dealing with compassion, dealing with exercise, all these different attributes in your life. And so you have a, a score now, and then through exercises and projects, um, And this is where this uh, do something new, and we're going to do some uh, do work with the power of observation are going to be available for the people in the study to take these like mini modules and study them, and uh, then uh, learn how to do something new. And then you uh, months later, I think it's twice a year you retake your baseline study so you can see where you're moving in the first round um, of participants, which was just, it just started and it started during COVID. So that's a really tough time. At any rate, what happened is they found that there was a five to 7% increase in people's brain health, the quality of their brain health just in a, in the first six months. So the idea is that my, uh, I'm going to partner with them to develop these uh, programs and units and try to provide opportunities to spread the word about my Do Something New practice but also, and power of observation, but also get some clinical data that we can use to help understand the impact of these projects.
0: Yeah, I love it. I've been to many events there and participated yeah. in, in one of their studies and what they're doing is incredible. And um, it's crazy that the, how little we know about the brain you know it's our most important right. resource but but i love that you're uh, working to make sure that art and the brain are connected because they are and that we have proof mm-hmm. on that so um yeah it's wonderful i love it and i can't wait to to hey. to participate in it but but as far as doing something new uh something new that's happened for me a lot in the pandemic has um uh, been visiting museums virtually and seeing art virtually mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, this, this week, actually, they started to administer the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, throughout the U S but in Texas, it started yesterday. And as that happens, we're kind of starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And for, um, having been starved of art for so long, uh, it's been really difficult and, and, and being able to see it virtually has been, uh, exciting. And, uh, but, at the same time, for museums having been closed for six, seven, eight, nine months, mm-hmm. we're really worried uh, that they're not going to survive. And the American Alliance of Museums uh, published a study in, uh, it was in June in July, uh, that said that one third of U.S. museums will... Right. Close forever, Um, and 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 that's a devastating uh, figure. And in response to that, people like uh, you know the American Alliance of Museum Directors in April relaxed the the rules around museum deaccessioning guidelines to uh, allow them to to use some funds for general operating expenses that they could stay afloat. Um, Right. But during these closures, museums and the art world has really gone online and really started to figure out how to become more creative. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering what sort of digital initiatives uh, have you seen that museums or other art institutions have developed that have been of particular um, you know, interest to you and, and something that you think is going to help them continue to engage audiences uh, in the future right. and make a difference?
1: Well, um, it's as you said, it's Definitely changed the way people experience museums, um, and I think that uh, there are so many great examples of institutions who have uh, moved in this direction. Uh, that it's been it's been exciting to see them. I think uh, the. Um, Locally, we've got great examples, in both in the Nasher and in the uh, DMA, where you can have virtual tours of exhibitions that are up and you can't get to, or you can participate in classes or uh, programs online in an abundance that they have never seen. Um, All of them have seen a growth in their audiences, the online audiences, and I think this is going to change the way that they... I think in museums are, uh, as they move through this, are excited that they're seeing their online attendance grow. And the challenge will be in the future to figure out how to keep a balance between online and in person uh, programs as they move forward. Uh, the inter- uh, Nationally, I think that some of the great, I think the Metropolitan has done an extraordinary job with their online. Programming largely because they uh, have approached it in different ways. They last week I watched a, a concert in the galleries where a musician was playing the Stradivarius violin in the music galleries and there was, you know, one, you listen to this incredible instrument um, as they were playing Bach um, in the galleries, which were, I mean, just the sound and the experience was so extraordinary. I mean, I know we don't all have... uh, Stradivarius uh, (laughs) violins in our collection, certainly not here in Dallas. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, but they set up these very specific programs like that, that bring together different media, different um, art forms uh, to explore the metropolitan. And I love their curator talks when the curators go into the galleries and you can get these kind of mini viewpoints of, um, of what's going on in the, um, in the in the collections, so the Met and uh, Metropolitan Museum in New York and the Museum of Modern Art have really done some outstanding work i I think what 's also surprising is that some of the other museums uh, for example the Norton Museum in uh, Florida, which uh, I hadn't really you know i know about but i hadn't really been on my horizon line is another example of a um a, a good museum a very good collection that um is doing online digital uh, experiences and they do a lot of artist interviews as they do in colorado at the heidi zickerman does up up in her institution in um in Colorado. So there, there's a huge range of programming that's going on that captivates you. Also, the ones that are behind the scenes that show you how works are cared for, um, conservation goes on. Those are things that you don't normally get to see if you're a regular visitor to a museum. So now those behind-the-scenes stories are coming out and becoming much more accessible so that people can understand the, the role of museums in the future um, in a way that they hadn't before. So I think, I think it's a platform that's growing and will continue long after the uh, completion, you know, the virus is over with and I think that the challenge for museums is trying to figure out this new balance because between in person and digital programming so that both can be enhanced and grow in the future
0: yeah and i think it's really going to be the key to survival museums are already Mm -hmm. struggling with how to uh, use technology in the galleries and engage people digitally and now during their closure they've been able to reach audiences um virtually Mm -hmm. who've never even been to the museum so uh, it's definitely gonna enrich their experience when they go back um Mm -hmm. but museums have also faced another critical issue um With regard to audiences during uh, this time, because in addition to the global health crisis, the political climate in our country, uh, particularly the movement around racial inequality uh, in this response to the death of George Floyd has forced many institutions to question their identity and the narratives that they um, put on. Uh, And in your course at UT Southwestern, sympathy, empathy and compassion are critical right. pillars that guide your curriculum. And I think they directly translate to diversity, equity, and inclusion, which are now buzzwords that dominate the conversation around cultural institutions. I'd like to know what right. steps you think museums need to take to make themselves more inclusive and more accountable.
1: Well, it's a big, it's a big topic, um, you know, and and I wish we all had magic wands to um, kind of demonstrate what, what is going on in, in institutions and diversity um, issues in museums from the staff and the board level all the way to the uh, acquisitions of works of art to um, what programs they put on, whether they're exhibition or otherwise. What has happened is that museums have done a, have a lot of territory to cover, you know, because I think a lot of people look at museums and in most cases, not in all, but in most cases they have limited resources. Um, they have a situation where budgets are governed by a lot of what we call restrictive funds and the funds can, can only have been designated by donors to be used in particular ways. And, and the average person has virtually no idea that that's going on. There's a desire for all museums to be more inclusive, not only in terms of their staffing and board. And they work hard to do that. But, you know, one, museums don't pay a lot of money in most cases. And so for young, talented um, people, uh, minorities who are coming into the profession, it's hard to get um, jobs that, uh, number one, because there aren't a lot, but number two, because the salaries, you know, they'll they'll be a smart person who's been... um, Receive masters and PhD degrees will be quickly uh, recruited by other institutions or other businesses to work in their areas, and, and museums are hard to break into. But not only that, they're difficult to um, uh, to be compensated. And I always remind people that it's the Mother Teresa. Um, do you have Mother Teresa tendencies? I'll ask them. You know, do you? Are you willing to work tirelessly and forever for no money? Um, you will get no recognition <laughs> for the work that you do, and um, your work is in service of other people. Um, and so, your your personal ambitions are are harder to. Um, to reconcile.
0: Now we're going to move to the fun part of the podcast. This is the lightning round. Okay. These are short, quick questions that I haven't given you, but no worries. Oh, They're no. going to be okay. easy. This is the surprise. Uh, so, all right. Uh, the first one is early bird or night owl? Night owl, absolutely. Coffee or tea?
1: Tea.
0: Talking or texting? Talking. Facebook or Instagram? Instagram. What's the last book you read? Oh my god! Or what are you reading? Um, well, now?
1: what am I reading now? I'm reading five books right now. One is called "Attending" by Ronald Epstein, and it's a—he's a physician who uses meditation in his practice. Um, another one what it, that I'm reading right now is um, uh, "Looking uh, Looking at Mindfulness" by Christopher Andre, which is. Uh, a study of 25 paintings that he's done with mindful activities. And then I'm reading the history of pandemics, <laughs> just, you know, um, getting ready for my new class at the beginning of the year and the history of medicine. In, and uh, because I have this brand new class, I forget who the authors are. They're, they're beside my, in my bedroom. But um, I'm not, uh, I tend to read in areas that I love. I'm not a big novel reader at all. I, I, um, I like nonfiction, I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Same, same. Every now and again, I'll pick up a work of fiction, but it's, it's not often. Um, you kind of mentioned this in, in the beginning, but I'm wondering if there's one memory in particular, uh, one of your first memories in a museum.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I was with my mother and, um, we were in, At the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., it was my family. We were moving to Florida, which was very scary. We were leaving New England and moving to Florida. And I had never been to the National Gallery. We stopped there in Washington for a few days to see the sights. And my father very happily took all of my brothers over to the history museum. So I didn't have, I had three (laughs) brothers, very boy-oriented, rambunctious brothers. And so my parents made this decision to divide us up. And my mother and I went through the national Gallery, and it was the one of the clearest memories I have of this joyous experience and there they used to have little gallery uh as you went into the galleries, there was a, a Xerox paper, or maybe a graph paper at that time that you could pick up that would tell you the name of every artwork in the gallery. And I just collected them all. And then my mom took me to the bookstore and we bought as many postcards as we could. And then I created a book of um, of the different galleries of the national gallery of art. And it it was something I held on for many years. It just finally fell apart. And the painting that, um, there were two paintings during that trip that I fell in love with. And I've kept in my mind ever since then one, since then one is Renoir's uh, the young girl with blonde hair with a watering can. And she's just standing there in the sunlight, um, in a perfectly beautiful blue velvet dress, uh, you know, looking at flowers and, and, uh, has a watering can. It's a very simple, you know, home, uh, domestic scene, but, uh, just reminded me so much of my life and, and, uh, what I wanted in life. And the other painting was by Raphael. It was the Tondo painting of the Madonna and child and, um, and, uh, uh, St. John um, the Baptist and it is uh, in an entirely different in the Renaissance galleries and for some reason I thought and still think that is perhaps one of the most beautiful paintings in the world and just the way it was conceived and the uh, I didn't know it was the composition but everything is so tightly arranged and the colors and the, the sense of calm and beauty in that p- picture so, the National Gallery has always been dear near and dear to my heart, and three times I was offered positions there. but um oh. they, it was the wrong time in my career to take them. I would have loved to have done that because um I have these very, very clear memories that led to my pursuit of art history,
0: yeah, it's a really museum
1: today, yeah, mm-hmm. right,
0: yeah, it's an incredible um, place, and I, I think how many Leonardo's in, in the United States are there? Uh, I think maybe less than three and they have one of them. It's oh, an yeah. amazing place. I think uh,
1: that's a great Google question, yeah. but, I, I, you know, I think it's maybe two, um, one or two. It's it, I, I don't think there are three. That, there was talk of the Salvador Mundi, which is still di- disputed, but it is, uh, you know, I know there's one, a beautiful one at the National Gallery.
0: Yeah, I try to see it every time I'm there.
1: Yeah, every time. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> My of course. next question is... Well, I think, I think that's our quest. Mm-hmm. You have the same quest in life that I do, which is to, you know, how can we be wrong? Going to museums, you see beautiful things. You surround yourself with the history of the world and cultures and and see things that bring you joy and happiness and in and of themselves were created to do that. So that that's why I love museums. That's why I feel so fortunate this is the work I've done my entire life.
0: Yeah. I mean, it couldn't, ima- I couldn't live without art and, and, and you're the yeah. same way. And my next question is what do you collect?
1: Oh, that's, oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I have always bought artworks from the communities that I've lived in. Um, there are very strict uh, um, rules of ethics that when you're in a, uh, work in a museum especially in a leadership role like a director or deputy director you can't conflict with the collections of the uh, of the institution that you're supporting so I wish there are many things I wish I could have purchased but um, wasn't able to because of that but in my own home I have mother wells again you know from from uh, time when I was uh, first working in New York, I was able to buy those. Um, I wasn't in a museum, so they were my first purchases. And most recently, I bought a beautiful Nick Nicosia, mm-hmm. uh drawing of uh, the, the minutes in the day. It's a series of four circles, each one a line that records the minutes in the day. And it is a fantastic piece because I use it when I meditate. So there are photographs of Hawaii and, and, um, lots of, you know, San Francisco bridge and things, you know, I have a Richard Misrock, um, of the golden photograph of the Golden Gate bridge. And that is a a favorite of, mine, uh, because uh, I live there. And so each of the, each of the pieces that are in the collection come from, from a moment in my life.
0: I didn't think about that. The, the being in a leadership museum in a position would preclude you from collecting certain works of art from, uh, the community. If
1: you're a Japanese curator, you should not be collecting, um, Japanese art.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a conflict of interest. It can be for sure. Yeah. Uh, my last question relates to ice cream. I know how much you love ice cream. And ah. I've, been, I, I've been fortunate enough to introduce you to new flavors of ice cream. I
1: know. Uh, that's well. how we met.
0: It is. <laughs> so I'm wondering, this is hard. This is going to be very hard for you. So if you could only have one flavor for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. what would it be? Vanilla. Okay, so you're a vanilla girl. (laughs)
1: I'm a vanilla girl. I love great vanilla ice cream. Häagen-Dazs makes great vanilla ice cream, but it only can count once. Right. But given my choices, my second favorite is um, peppermint. Um, You know, so it's vanilla ice cream with real chunks of peppermint, which is you can get right now. But um, yeah, I'm a vanilla girl.
0: I, I feel that you could write a book about the flavors of ice cream and yes, every chapter would be that. a flavor of ice cream and include your do something uh, well, in your practice a and, and a recipe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: yeah. no, I've kept a record of all the ice creams I've tried. And uh, so it, it could be a book. <laughs> there are <laughs> many that I didn't like. I would just go, yuck, you know, what were they thinking? But, um, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. I eat a lot less of it now, but it's a lot of fun to be in that in that, uh, in that space that you can enjoy. It's a great question.
0: When we first met, I was picking your brain, and I do this often with museum directors. Mm-hmm. It was something that I wanted to do um, and, and still would love to do. Um, but, I'm, but I'm wondering for, for those out there who, who are considering or want to be museum directors, what would be your advice to them?
1: Well, um... Be brave. That's the first thing you know, that I would tell you you need to be because uh, when I grew up and became a museum director it was so different. The environment was so different and the complexities of running an in- were substantially different than they are now, you need to have a background not only in art history, but also uh, some understanding of business and uh, human resources, because you're leading a group of people, uh, both your board of trustees and your... um, and your staff to try to create a vision that you can move people, um, in the institution and with the community for, uh, to, uh, create and respond to. So having backgrounds in, in, uh, psychology or whatever you want to call it, you know, the human aspects of, uh, of, of leadership is really, really important, um, You have to have content. You have to know what you're curating and presenting. And so it's one of those wonderful jobs that requires both. You need to bring these together in a new way through the work that you're doing. And... um, you know, this is where I say there's a lot, uh, and you've done this in your own career, of uh, benefit in taking these uh, internships and, and fellowships where you make no money, but you gain real experience behind the scenes. And that's important. Um, I have another young friend this year who's graduating from college who really wants long term to be in a museum director. And so because of COVID, rather than he can't get a job right now, um, what he's going to do is take... Uh, Take some time and study business, because if you want to be a real museum director, you have to understand balance sheets, you have to understand investments, you have to uh, be able to do projections, and uh, you know know how to read these things. and when I went to art history school, they didn't teach you any of that. I had to learn all of that on my own and through other classes.
0: Yeah, I feel it's even the same for artists, people who are in MFA programs. They don't yeah. teach them business. They don't teach them you know, right. uh, legal advice either. Um, so no. it's definitely kind of a holistic, uh, you know, there, a there, holistic. yeah, there, there are many paths to uh, to that position.
1: Yeah, there are. And I would say that the qualities that you want to look for in yourself or in people doing this are um, some of the ones that you've already mentioned, you know, their sense of uh, their style of leadership. Is it inclusive or uh, not? Is it, you know, sort of authoritarian in museums? You have to have an inclusive style, you have to, um, have, uh, strategies about building resilience because there can be great ideas fostered out there, but they're put down by your colleagues or by the lack of resources. You have to create, um, um, and develop artistic vision, but artists, um, and many times people on your staff are artists and that you're working with. So the, um, you know, those are more, um, uh, Exciting uh, personalities, but their creative personalities also take more time to manage because deadlines may or may not have the same um, significance. So it's a, it's a balancing act. And I think that you have to have those courages, uh, those uh, characters of uh, courage and resilience and um, and, uh, you know, kind of a. a A way in which no matter what obstacles happen, you're like Gumby, you fall down, but you get right back up and you say, well, I learned something from that. Let's keep going, (laughs) you know, just sort of enjoy uh, being in the moment and seeing those successes and acknowledging them.
0: Absolutely. I'm so glad you referenced Gumby that brought me back to my childhood. I I love Gumby. I'm sure I still have the Gumby action figure somewhere and we need to be more like Gumby. Yeah, We
1: all do. You know, fundraising is definitely, um, you know... uh, People would say to me, "How can you keep going when people say no to me?" And I say, "Because one of these days, they're going to say yes." And you know, I just think of the little Gumby going splat, and then coming <laughs> right back up and marching forward, and eventually you do find that person who says yes. And that, those are the moments of sheer joy in your life.
0: Absolutely. And I I know hopefully uh, there will be some medical professionals out here who who hear this and I, I'm sure there's many who are familiar with your work or or, or the the concept of of uh, the bridging art and and healthcare and I'd love to know what uh, would be your advice to um, people who are working in the healthcare field who want to um, who want to get more involved with the arts and try to integrate that into their practice.
1: All right. Well, of course, I believe it's truly an essential um, component of the work of physicians and medical staff, as well as the patients. And the answer about how do I get involved in it is, you know, just the burnout in the medical professions is one of the highest of all professions. People come in and they just out. And I'm deeply worried about what the impact of COVID is going to be on um, the future of practitioners. You know, a lot of these nurses, doctors, and technicians, and healthcare workers that are behind the scene are going to leave the COVID situation. They're in high overdrive right now, but when they um, get a moment to sort of reflect on this, I think there's going to be a huge exodus of people from the profession. So what the arts can do is really help them with balancing uh their work life situation and getting them involved in other things that are uh beautiful and creative and life supporting so that they're not always in a in a complicated, difficult situation. So for me, what I would say is uh find, you know, you don't have to create works of art, just go look at beautiful things. Go out and walk in nature. Um Take time to uh, be with yourself and and be creative uh, with yourself and uh, enjoy those moments of reflection and compassion to yourself. Those will make you stronger. And so I'd say just do what you can to enjoy it, enjoy yeah, I, life.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. And I hadn't thought about the the mass exodus in medicine that will Mm -hmm. probably occur.
1: Yeah, I I think we're on the brink of it. Unfortunately, people are dying treating the COVID patients, but I think behind that are going to be the burnout, um, which is going to be huge.
0: Yeah. If you could own any work of art, what would it be? Ah. Just one, like you could steal it and no one would ever know you had it. You'd get (laughs) away with it.
1: Well, if I could steal one, I, I think actually it would be the Raphael, uh, Tondo, Madonna at the National Gallery. And the other, another one would probably be a Dotto. Um, you know, just one of his beautiful drawings uh, that he did. But I, you know, it, that is such a bad question to ask. <laughs> <a museum director. laughs>
0: I know it's fun. I I, I I love hearing people's responses. And I actually had a, a guest uh, in, in season uh-huh. one who her response was, Giotto and she said she would steal the entire Capella Padua. yeah, well, yeah. That, that's go for her good for her right yeah. right yeah, so I said if it ever goes thing, missing I, I know where to i know where to find it right you
1: know where to go yeah that's that's pretty interesting um yeah so yeah it, it, it it's it's happy happy news um for all of us that we can um that we can uh imagine these things but you know they belong in the public domain and and to be well cared for so let's hope for that most of all
0: absolutely well you, you'd leave a nice replica right of the, of the, yeah, I of the yeah it's yeah. tiny it's easy enough for you to, to hang
1: <laughs> well both of them are not they're not huge pieces but they're blind pieces to me
0: so my final question I ask everyone is that there's no crystal ball but if I gave you a magic wand what would be your wish for the art world
1: Continued prosperity and uh, creativity, or I'd probably reverse it. May the the creative artists continue with their lives uh, and produce works, and may the uh, artists and the institutions that uh, care for them have have a life of prosperity so that they can effectively do their jobs, and may people join them in celebrating those moments may there be um, people who uh, really do participate in that in the best, in the best sense of the world. So it's more than one wish. I know that I was bad, but.
0: (laughs) No, but it's the, it's the action. It's the sentiment. We, we definitely Mm -hmm. uh, we're we're all hoping for that. Um, First of all, survival, but then after we're through that prosperity to continue to, to grow and flourish and create and, um, and, and to have new opportunities to create for people who yeah. haven't been creators before. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie. It's been such a well, privilege to speak with asked, you.
1: Yeah, well, you've asked great questions and I'm, I'm really, really grateful to you for this opportunity. We've covered a huge range
0: of <laughs> we have, things we in have. my life and
1: um, I know I've done my best to sort of uh, help you understand them, but... Um, You know, that you and your listeners to get an insight into um, into my life. But yeah, so this is good.
0: Thank you. We it's just scratched the, the surface, very much. but I, I can't wait to to be, to be try new flavors of ice cream with you. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm excited. Well, when this is over. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Artroverted. Stay tuned for next week, where we talk to collector and neuroscientist Shirley Muller about the science of collecting. Remember, when it comes to art, it doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted, because you can always be introverted. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon.